On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Our next guest on the programme is somebody from a former British colony with a flag of green, white and orange who thinks that the country has never quite lived up to its promises uh, achieved when it managed to get independence from Britain. And if that all sounds familiar, then there's probably a reason why it might seem all familiar. The country that he's talking about is not Ireland, though. The country he's talking about is India. But the person who's making this call and who's written a new book about it might be someone whose name you might remember. His name is Ashoka Modi. And if that name jogs your memory, it's because once upon a time, all of those painful years ago, he was the head of the IMF mission to Ireland. So I spoke to him a little while ago and I spoke to him about the book about India and his calls for that and what we can learn from that and whether some of his fears about India could apply to countries like Ireland or anywhere else. But I started off by asking him for his reflections on how Ireland has moved in the years since he was here. The IMF has gone almost 10 years Once upon a time, we were at 15% unemployment. We couldn't borrow on the world markets. Now we have a surplus of 10 billion euro. The economy is due to grow by 5% this year and unemployment is down to 3.8%. I asked him for his thoughts on that turnaround. Yes, there's no question that Ireland has come a long way. Uh, I'm sceptical of some of the headline numbers that you gave of 5% growth and so on. Uh, I've been sceptical for a long time because I have no idea given the fact that Ireland is now a well-established tax haven, uh, the the numbers are very complicated to interpret. But yes, clearly, in the employment numbers are looking extremely good. And those numbers tell us that there is uh, a very sound recovery that has occurred since then. But you think that the, the headline figures of economic growth of 5 or 6% that they're being massaged by Ireland's tax treatment of multinationals? Oh yes, 100%. There's no question about that. Uh, there, is no, there is no way that a rich country can grow at 5 or 6% for such a long period of time. So you think that the headline figures can only be uh, that way because they're influenced overtly by the treatment that Ireland has of big firms like Apple or Google? Yes, that has been long my view. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't necessarily underlying economic growth occurring. That is Ireland's model of economic growth. And that is, as you have pointed out, creating jobs. But I would not pay any attention to the 5 or 6% growth number. That's a meaningless number. It's not comparable to anything that you would do we're comparing it with any other country because in Ireland's tax treatment puts it in a completely different category and therefore those numbers uh, are somewhat meaningless. Okay, uh, I know you said, uh, and we were speaking to you just before you came on air and we were talking about how you haven't been uh, following Irish affairs too closely since you finished up with the IMF, but was that a view that you had at the time when you were leading the IMF mission to Ireland? Did you have concerns then about Ireland being, as you describe it, a tax haven? Uh at the time that the the uh, uh, bailout program was being uh, designed and implemented, this was not the central focus of uh, of the program design. Uh, there was, as I recall at the time, uh, some murmuring within the IMF uh, and other bodies, especially the so-called European partners. Uh, who were very agitated about it and wanted some part of the conditionality to be imposed on Ireland 
to reduce this tax behavior. Mm. Uh, I think we were successful in saying that at that time that was not the appropriate moment. And I, I think the history tells us that there was no effort at that time to uh, impose any new conditionality with regard to the tax treatment. Mm. That said, right after that, uh, once Ireland began to grow so rapidly, I was in Ireland a few times, and by this time I was no longer an IMF official. And I spoke on many occasions, including, I think, News Talk, uh, that these headline growth numbers uh, didn't make any sense to me. Um, so it wasn't a priority at the time. I presume the reason why it wasn't a priority is because there were so many other structural issues with the Irish economy and with the debt burden that it just sort of became too too further down your pecking order. Um, if you don't mind me saying so, though, I mean, I remember when the the terms and conditions for the bailout program were published and it was pretty clear that there was a, an awful lot of reform needed in an awful lot of sectors. You know, I'm thinking about the reform of access to the legal profession. And so it, it strikes me as unusual then that e- even though there were so many reforms needed in so many areas, the, the program was so big that it would have been plausible to include some reform of Ireland's tax laws, particularly if, if as you say, the European partners were keen to pursue it. Uh I cannot give you a direct answer to that question. I know that while the program was very big, uh, at least my own focus, uh, and I think you will see this in the records of the IMF reports that came out at that time, the entire focus was on the banking sector. Mm. The, The stabilization and the rehabilitation of the banking sector was the you know, so-called, you know, 800-pound gorilla. Yeah. And everything else was, was yeah, it was added on for various reasons. Various people w- were involved in it. Uh, and I think the European Commission must have had some very strong views on some of those other things. Uh, but from my perspective, unless the banking sector was rehabilitated and restored, nothing else would have mattered. Do you think that was my my entire focus? Okay, well, which which is fair enough because it was a pretty big issue, as you say, the eight hundred pound gorilla. Um, at this note, then, uh, with the the bailout program now being ten years in the past, what are your reflections of how Ireland has done in the meantime, notwithstanding those concerns that you have about those headline economic figures? Well, um, for me, the metric, and you know, when we speak about my India book, you will see the metric always is employment. And employment is a number that does not typically lie. Uh, and the fact that the unemployment rate is so low mm. tells me that basically there is good health in the economy. And uh, therefore, um, uh, Ireland has made a lot of progress. What worries me, and I said this again as a private citizen soon after the bailout program, is that if there is global insistence on uh, Ireland, you know, rethinking or substantially undoing its uh, tax regime. Uh, I, I have to say and make it clear, I know that you are couching this in very sort of uh, antiseptic words like, you know, tax regime. Mm. But for much of the world uh, regards Ireland as a tax haven. Mm. And for that reason, 
there may at some point be uh, uh, pressure on Ireland to undo some of it. It skated past that pressure for a long time. When that happens, I'm not clear what what the the broader fallout of that will be. And that's what worries me about that. Okay. So you think it would be almost in the national interest for Ireland to address this fact that it is a tax haven, in your words, and to try and restructure things so that it is better prepared because it just can't stay like this forever? I think that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, it's a very good way of putting it because it's clear that Ireland has made huge strides. It's a rich country. Uh, it's got a, a well-developed labor force. Uh, it's got good education. It's got the wherewithal to now having propelled itself to from an extremely uh, poor condition within Europe to one of the most uh, advanced economies in Europe. To to get rid of this uh, tax haven and and be a normal country, and uh, I don't see why that is uh, not a reasonable proposition at this time. Okay, um, you think that we've got a good health and a good, well-educated labour force and the like. I imagine, based on the introduction that I read there, those are all qualities that you don't believe are shared by your native country of India. That is exactly right, and that's why you know, for me. Now more as an economist, thinking about long-term development rather than the immediate short-term focus uh, that I necessarily had when I was at the IMF. Yes, those are exactly the, the lived reality of people, jobs, human capital, which is education and health, the quality of cities they are living in. The, judicial, the functioning of the judicial system, the environment, not just air, but especially water. That lived reality is what I think of when I think of a more extended uh, prospect of a country. Mm. And that is the entire focus of my book on it. Um, do you think that that is simply just down to the nature of electoral politics, that people are always going to look for short-term solutions and that they're not prepared to deal with long-term issues? Or is there something specific about India, perhaps the, the level of population, that make those issues harder to grapple with there than anywhere else? So so I think, I think both of the elements that you describe are relevant, but there is one more important that is relevant. So clearly it's a large country, very diverse, difficult to manage. Uh, democracy does induce a short-termism in the policy-making world. But in addition, the one that I focus on as the sort of critical factor that has had a very deep uh, impact, which is why I call the book India is Broken, that is the erosion of social norms and public accountability. What I mean by that is that history has somewhat unfortunately pushed successive prime ministers and successive administrations into disregarding the essential norms and, and accountability measures within which they operate. And that once you are in that situation, it creates what I call a bad equilibrium. That if, if, if a substantial number of people 
are, are disregarding the norms and accountability, mm. then it's in no one's interest to do that. And you get stuck in this bad equilibrium, which is why even when there are good policies, their implementation and enforcement is such that it does not make any okay. uh, significant difference. It sounds like from what you're arguing there, this lack of equilibrium, that it's also a warning to the rest of the world, that if you get rid of certain safeguards and certain mechanisms of accountability, that any other country could, could reach the same problems. Yes, 100%. You know, when I speak to American audiences, uh, they raise the question about the United States. And I say, yes, I see this very much happening over here, which is why you're seeing in the United States a deterioration of the education system, a, a corrosion of the judicial system, a disregard of the environment. Whenever accountability diminishes, these are the features that are most adversely affected. You're seeing that the, the, the difference is that India starts from a very low position, and therefore when something like that happens in the Indian context, it has extremely long-term impact because the magnitudes involved are much vaster. You know, just as a measure uh, that might strike you, uh, according to my estimation, over the next decade, India needs to create 200 million jobs wow. to fully employ its 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 uh, working age population. And well, on that, that note, as a final note, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Ashoka, but we're slightly pressed for time. But just one thing that strikes me about, uh, and this is a very European-centric view of India, and I fully accept that it might not be a very well-rounded one. But for example, in a country like Ireland, our perception of the jobs in India relative to to Europe is that often that's where we farm out the roles that we think are sort of beneath us or that are low paid workers. So that, for example, um, call centres for, for modern services economies are often based in India because the labour is cheaper, but it's an English speaking country. But one thing that strikes me now is that you could replace a lot of that with the advent of AI. And so a lot of the cheaper labour that India is able to provide now could merely be overtaken by the advance of technology. And that to me albeit as a European, maybe not with the best rounded view, strikes me as a major threat to a country like India. Yeah, again, the numbers are very important. The Indian workforce is 525 million people. And the call centre people are less, maybe in one or two million people. The vast bulk of Indians are doing jobs that are much more inferior to even call centre jobs. So I think to understand India, you have to appreciate that 45% of the workforce is still in agriculture. Much of the rest of the workforce is in construction, retail, uh, trade, transportation, low-end service jobs. It's only this, a small fraction that the West sees who are in call center jobs or in fact are CEOs of Silicon Valley firms. But the, the problem is that the magnitudes are just completely out of the realm of even visualization of a Western audience. That was Ashoka Modi, who was the chief IMF representative to Ireland during the time of the bailout from 2010 to 2013. Uh, he's the author of a new book called India is Broken, A People Betrayed Independence to Today. But I think there's some some lessons there or some thinking that can be applied to the Irish circumstance as well. And certainly not mincing his words around what he thinks is the source of Ireland's economic growth on paper, at the very least anyway. 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.